It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is CEO Leticia Latino Van Splinterin. Leticia was born and raised in Venezuela by Italian immigrant parents, so she's always been exposed to a multicultural approach to life and business. When she graduated with a BS in business administration, people assumed she would go straight into Neptuno, the company her father had founded in 1972. However, she had other ideas and decided to take a different path and work for two major multinational companies and achieved her MBA before joining the family business. Leticia Latino, welcome into the corner office. Thank you, Brent. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, great to have you here today. Well, as you know, we kind of like to get started to hear a little bit about the early years. And if you could tell us a little bit about where you grew up and you know what your family life was like, it, it sounded like you, you grew up uh, with an entrepreneur as well in the family. Oh, yes, I did. <laughs> I did. Uh, yes, I was born and raised in Caracas, Venezuela. And uh, But my parents, as you mentioned, they are both Italians, so I had a little bit, I always feel I have to kind of explain that, you know, I'm Venezuelan, but uh, I'm coming from a family where in my household, everybody spoke Italian, there is Italian traditions. Uh, my mom actually uh, made it to Venezuela after, right after they got married. Uh, she was 29, so she was already, you know, uh, grown up. Established. Uh, yes, but uh, we had a very happy upbringing. I have two siblings and, uh, you know, happy life. Uh, Venezuela was a very different country back then. Yes, yes. Well, we spoke a little bit before the podcast. I had the opportunity to visit Venezuela in the late 90s. And I remember it's a, it's a very much a country of immigrants, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. And what makes it different is is really it's a lot of people like my parents. We are not, I'm the first generation Venezuelan. Right, so right, so right. we are still very connected. I only had like one aunt in Venezuela. Everybody else is in Italy. And so it's a it's a very interesting mix. And uh, but my parents, they love the country so much that they're still there, believe they're it or not. They're still there. Oh yes. gosh. Now what motivated them to immigrate from Italy to Venezuela? And and were they in their twenties when they did so, or did they come over as children? No, they were in their twenties. My dad uh, was, I think, twenty-four or twenty-five. So it was uh 1960, more or less. And uh, basically Italy after Second World War was, you know, not in a very in very good shape. And uh, he's from, or, or they're both are rather from the island, from Sicily. And so even worse there, you know, as in any country, they weren't from the capital or anything like that. So a lot of immigration going back to or going to South America. 
And uh, my dad's sister ended up marrying an Italian also that uh, found a job there in Venezuela on the utility company. So, so my dad being the young guy, he's, well, I'll go and check it out and see. And so he, he saw so much, so many opportunities there that he ended up, you know, not being able to leave. Just staying. And did they kind of leave everything back in Sicily? Was it one of those types of immigrations or were they able to, you know, bring some of their, uh, uh, you know, belongings and so forth along with them or, or were they at the age where it didn't really matter much? Yeah, I, th- I think that's more of the case. Yes, my dad right. didn't have much. And then my mom, I mean, they were going back and my dad would go back and forth to visit his family. And then he met my mom. And in four months, I tell her she was very courageous because in four months, he said, you either come back with me or you stay here. And so my mom moved to a country where she didn't know anybody, wow. didn't know the didn't language. Know the language. Yeah. There was yeah. no email, no WhatsApp, you know, back on those days. So I say, wow, you were really brave. And she was 29, more or less, when that happened. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so yes. he brought her back, basically, and said, let's yes. start a family. Wonderful. Yes. And you said brothers and sisters as well? Yeah, I have an older brother and uh, and a younger sister. I'm 44, so we're right there. Almost get he's almost getting to 50. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, and uh, they, my brother is in Venezuela, uh, still leading our company there with my dad, who's 83, and he still works every single day of his life. And and my sister is uh, in Florida. Now, did they start Neptuno? Is that uh, the the business that they were running uh, when your father came over, or what uh, you know led to his entrepreneurial pursuits? Yeah, no. When when he first moved, my uncle, uh, that was the really the driver, uh, was uh, involved in some utility projects in Venezuela, and their stories are. I mean, I just have a blast when I hear my dad's stories because uh, <laughs> there there was no electricity in most of the country, so they really went for months at a time. Uh, to, you know, deploy the the utility network, the electrical network of Venezuela. And uh, so he had a lot of, they did a lot of uh, in-field experience they, they gathered. And then kind of my dad saw the opportunity to venture out into telecom. And so my uncle stayed on the electrical on the utility, and then my dad went into installing uh, telecom towers. Okay, got it, got it. And he did that on his own then? Yeah, he did that completely on his song. He's not an engineer of any sort. So that's the other thing I always say, wow, how, how you achieve this, you know, because it's a very technical industry. So, but he saw the opportunity and he surrounded himself with, uh, with good people. That's what he always says has been one of the key to successes. And, and that's how he did it. Now, we mentioned in your uh, bio that it was always assumed you would go into, the, go into the business. Did you get involved in the business at an early age? Yes, absolutely. If you go to if you go to our webpage, I actually pay in in the note from the CEO, I put a picture of my mom, my pregnant mom, with me <laughs> um, at a construction site. And this is what my dad was. These were the Sunday uh, road trips for my dad. He would he would find some reason what to say. Oh, let's go go here, and it sounded exciting. And uh, all of a sudden, you are in a construction site, and say it will, it will be two minutes. We will be will be short. <laughs> and uh, and so yeah, we you know since very little, he was always taking us to the office and finding little things there that we can do to help. Who were some of the other early influences in your life? It sounds like mom and dad played a big role. Mom and dad play a huge role. The family, obviously, as in any Sicilian uh, environment, uh, they sent us to Catholic schools. So 
definitely uh, not so much religion, but definitely they develop a spiritual uh, curiosity. So definitely I've always liked to read about, you know, leaders and, and I mean, uh, even as I even younger, you know, like the 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 history of uh, the story of the Pope and that kind of stuff. I was always looking into inspirational stories like that. But I would say my dad has always been more of a of a, an inspiration in terms of uh, what I wanted to achieve. And my mo- my mom is the you know perfect housewife and so yeah so devoted. So I always say I have it hard because I if I compare myself to my dad on the business. Um, you know, realm of things. Uh, it's it's hard to to succeed. You know, at uh, at surpassing him. And then as a mom, I am a mom of two. I want to do things like my mom did, right, it, and then right. it's almost impossible to reconcile. <laughs> you know, work with the home. Right. Well, you said it sounds like you had two great role models. Was your mother involved in the business as well, or did she focus pretty much on the kids? No, just on the kids. So you mentioned Catholic school. I assume that was probably a Jesuit school, was it? Or what was the... Um... It's uh, Teresiana. It's from Therese de Avila. Right. Sa- okay. San Teresa. Uh-huh. Uh, San Teresa. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, but yeah, it's a pretty traditional all-girls school. Nuns. <laughs> nuns teaching nuns, the classes, right? Yeah. Nuns, all-girls. I was there for 17 years. Wow. Yeah. Wow. From Were pre- you... pre-K to high school. Were you a good student? I was a good student, yes, I have to say. I or is it kind of the situation where the nuns would wrap your knuckles if you weren't? <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, some of them did, yes. Um, I was uh, My only problem in school uh, was that I, I, I'm a very social person. So the nuns would always tell me if there was a, a subject called uh, corridor, because I was always found in the corridor, <laughs> I, I would have an A+. Plus. That was their oh, main that's problem. that's too funny. Uh, yes, uh, so they put you outside. Right? Yes, you they set were out always, the corridor. Yes, and they were they were frustrated because I got great grades and I was class president, and so they wanted to kind of tell me, you know, you're not gonna do good, but I was doing good. <laughs> and were there outside uh, of school opportunities? You know, any sports? Uh, you mentioned class president. What other types of extracurricular were you involved with growing up? I always uh, was interested in languages, so very early, even in high school, I was doing extra English classes at the British Council, um, and then I was doing music. I played the guitar, not 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 really great. Now, the, eventually, I married an engineer that is also a musician, so he would say, "No way, you don't play the guitar." <laughs> he, oh, but uh, but I do play the guitar with the nuns. I learned that much. <laughs> I can imagine. So Italian at home and then Spanish in school, I presume, right? Yes, yes. And I noticed you speak French as well. Where did you pick that up? Well, I started that I started when I was like 30, more or less. I always have bucket lists of things I want to do. And so um, I started going to Alliance Francaise here in Florida. Of course, yeah. And then with Nortel, I went through a very interesting layoff experience at Nortel. And uh, when that happened, I took six months off and went to France and lived there. Ah, good for you. Good for you. What's on your bucket list today, Letitia? Oh, retire on a, on a sailboat or <laughs> something like that. You're too young for that. Come on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Skydiving still in my... Skydiving. I've done bungee jump out of the tallest tower in the Western Hemisphere. That's oh 600 goodness. feet in New Zealand. Um, but now that I'm a mom, I say I should have done the sky jump uh, the, <laughs> before because now it's hard with small kids to do it. 
but maybe learn Dutch. That's one. Yeah, that's good. That's good. And well, you know, I we talked about that as well. That I uh, speak that language, and it is a, a very difficult one to learn. But I will give you a hint. There is a school in Vught, Holland, that used to be actually teach by nuns. It's a language school, and uh, you go in in an intensive type of a way and. Um, it is probably the best way. I, I knew that I could speak Dutch fluently after I started dreaming it in about three, four days. So it is that type of an environment. But uh, you'd be back with the nuns again. So maybe that's not a good idea. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think I'm done with that stage. <laughs> any, any entrepreneurial things when you were growing up? Uh, you know, it sounds like you were taken to the office and I'm probably sure did some things around, uh, you know, the office. But uh, were there any things that you did uh, or was that really not so much the um, uh, the opportunity for you growing up in Venezuela? You yeah, know, uh, the, you hit it on the nail. Uh, where, where, you know, when you grow up in Venezuela, even in my time, it was still some sort somehow dangerous. So right, when I right. see kids and my kids tell me, let's go sell cookies and yeah, or let's put the, the lemonade yeah. stand and all that, I, I kind of envy that, you know, because it's something so cool that some, you know, a good chunk of the kids here in the States, uh, there are some somehow privileged to live in safer neighborhoods, get to do. Uh, but in Venezuela, even if you live in a good neighborhood, you wouldn't get to do it that. It wouldn't be something um, you would do. Yeah. But I did, I did uh, back in school with the nuns, you know, they would give us in the recreation time, like um, some like uh, uh, fundraising activities to do. And so I create, I, you know, with a friend of mine, we put up like a bowling alley in in one of the corridors. We with those fake pins, the plastic pins, <laughs> and uh, back to the corridor. Yes, <laughs> I'm telling you. <laughs> you spent enough time out there. You I had some ideation going on. That was my house. <laughs> so oh, I love so, it. And then yeah. you charge people to play bowling yes. in the in the corridors. Yes. Oh, I love it. And we were That's supposed great. to do it for like one week, but it resulted that a lot of people like to spend the extra. Uh, buck at the at the bowling. We had little like toys that were giveaways, and yeah, it worked out for like a year. That's fun. That's fun. So, uh, was college always in your plan? Was that something that your parents expected you to do, or something that you um, had a, an insight about uh, there in Venezuela? Yeah, absolutely. College was never uh, even debatable for my parents. Uh, that the, the but graduate school was, and in fact, I'm the only one from my siblings that went to graduate school. But college was like, there's no reasoning with that. It was assumed you would. Yes, right, yes, right. Would. And both your siblings did as well. Yes, we we had, uh, you know, I had a little bit of a challenge because my dad. Now I thank I thank him for that, but uh, I wanted to study law, <laughs> and uh, and uh, he steered me into business. So yeah. Yeah, so that was uh, his motivation. That was my next question. You you chose the major more by your dad's uh, guidance. Yes, yes, and, and you know, looking back, you he used to say, if you study law, and then you cannot move countries. You always talk to Venezuela because then you can only practice here, and uh, unless you you know you go through a very lengthy process. And now I see it with some of my friends that have to have had to leave Venezuela, and now it's not that easy. All the uh, people that are dentists and, and architects, you know, sometimes you need to sign in the country where, where you're designing. And so with business has been very simple <laughs> to, 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 to move. Yes, exactly. The principles were the same. What was the first job you took out of college or, or did you go straight to grad school? No. So, uh, the interesting thing is, and that's where I've always kind of, uh, my dad says, I, I, 
I tremble when Leticia says, Daddy, you know what I've been thinking? <laughs> because they say nothing good comes after that. <laughs> so back in, uh, in, in undergraduate, in, when I was doing my bachelor, there was an optional uh, internship that you could do. And a friend of mine had found about this opportunity in Miami to, f- to go do the internship for MTV. So we ah. both applied, sounded so excited. I was, I get excited even now when I say, <laughs> but uh, so the truth is no, no, no. I mean, we didn't get it. And, uh, but at that time I was so satisfied. Oh, it would be nice to go to Miami, to Miami and, right, and do right. an internship. That came on the bucket list. It sounds like. Yes. And, and you know, <laughs> Venezuelans, if you go into the history, we've always had a very tight relationship with Miami. You know, a lot of Venezuelans in the in the good years bought apartments here and and they had, and were familiar. So I was very familiar with Miami, and I planted the seed and I told my dad I really think I I want to do an internship there. Is any of your friends able to help me? <laughs> and uh, so it happens he had a good friend at Merrill Lynch that then become I consider him my mentor today because he guided me into a few directions that were really pivotal. And, uh, and he said, you know what? Uh, yeah, with her uh, uh, background and all that, I think I can get her a, a, an internship. So he did. And I spent the three months here in Merrill Lynch, Miami. And that was my first real, let's say, job. Or And, uh, and uh, yeah, and that, that turned out well because I met so many people in the virtual corridor because that's been <laughs> my thing, you know. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Uh, that I met some of the brokers in, in the Caracas office through the phone just by doing deals with them. And they, they offered me a job on my last year of college. Fantastic. So, so you returned exactly. and returned to Caracas. Fantastic. And then uh, how many years did you work before you went back for your master's? Not right away. Like three three days after I did my dissertation, uh, I started. And this was uh, this mentor, the guy that got me the 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 job at Merrill Lynch, my first internship. Uh, I was here on, on April. I was graduating in July. He said, "You have to go right away to to get your graduate degree, and you're gonna get two. UM University of Miami has this great program, and you do two degrees in one." And, uh, and people are, anybody has one master, he said, and now you have to take two, get ahead of everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Good for you. And it was great, great advice. And so I went after that year, I graduated, I went straight to graduate school. Got it. Got it. And then have you been to the States ever since, or did you return to Caracas after your MBA and your master's? Yeah, in 96, I came in 96, uh, and I returned briefly after that Nortel experience I mentioned, uh, when I had the opportunity to go to France, I went back home. That's when we made the decision. My dad had been uh, begging me, not begging, if he hears this, he say, I didn't beg. No, uh, <laughs> he was uh, uh, cons- asking me to consider opening an office in, in the U.S. and opening the U.S. branch. And I said, if I'm going to do that, I have to go back. And I have to learn, really, I have to go to the factory with you. And I have to, I have to, if I, I need to have a smart conversation about towers. And yes, I was raised in that environment. And I always tell people, not many people can, can say they were really born into it. And I was in a way, um, but, but from there to really lead the company and, and have the, the uh, knowledge that you need to have is a very different thing. So I went back for a year and a half to do that. And then when I came back, we opened up Tuno USA. I see. And um, did you have leadership responsibilities then when you came back or was it more of kind of a orientation during that period? When, when did you start, uh, you know, managing people? 
Yeah, I, I did start uh, managing the, the international team, the sales team. Uh, it wasn't big, but we ha- he put that right right there under my 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 wing, so to speak. Uh, and uh, I think, and that probably is a podcast on itself in, into how how can family business be successful in terms of the relationships. You right? knew where my next question was going to go. You know how how difficult was that? Because I can imagine many of these uh, managers that you were running had probably been with the company a long time, had worked with your dad, and then this you know young upstart young upstart you know daughter comes along. Uh, were you accepted straight away? Ah, uh, that's I don't know. That's a question for them. I always wonder. <laughs> I think uh, you are accepted because, and thank God we treat people, you know, very, you know, I treat everybody the same and equal as me. And our general manager, believe it or not, has been with my dad since he was 19 and uh, he's still in the company. So he's been, he's been with us with, for like 40 years. So they call it the fourth son. Yes, <laughs> the right. Fourth kid. Right. Um, and, and I think me and my siblings have always, uh, recognized that, that it's someone that's not from the family, but was the right hand for my dad for so many years that, uh, that we treat him like that. I always treat him like, you, you know, more than me because you've been here longer, you know? And, uh, but I do think that people just go into the, oh, she's the daughter of the owner. He's the son of the owner. And we have, you have it a little tougher. You really have to work harder to get people respect. What were some of the earliest leadership lessons uh, you learned from the business, Leticia? Uh, from our business? Yes. You know, going back, this is after your you know, graduate program and you know, doing that training and then coming, obviously, uh, over to the States. You know, do, you, do you recall some of the things that were important in terms of running the business? Yes, I tried to, you know, by then, I, I obviously, I had spent uh, like almost five years at Nortel, so I, I did have uh, the ability to 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 see, you know, great leaders, great executives. I also saw some others that weren't that great. Bad examples. Uh, Sometimes those are some of the most lasting, aren't they? Yes, especially, you know, if I don't know if, how much you know about Nortel history, but it was a company that went from 120,000 yes. employees to bankruptcy. Yeah, it was and, crazy. And it was yeah. over a period of years, and it was, the you know, one of the biggest companies in, in, in Canada and in the world in terms of the telecom industry. Um, and I saw how that whole process was handled so poorly in, in different situations, you know, that uh, I learned a lot in terms of leadership. And one of the things, and I see it in my dad too, it's you have to be as transparent as you can with the people you lead. Um, sometimes, obviously, you cannot tell, you know, the whole strategy to 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 your team, or you cannot just divulge all the all the you know company information. But but there are ways where you can let them know. Listen, we're not going through good times. Everybody, you know, like brace for impact. You know, we don't know what's gonna happen. Or you can, you know, you can. There's ways that you can uh, make them comfortable. And uh, so that being transparent, treating people like uh, if I would want to know about this, then I try to share as much as I want. I can share to make them as comfortable as I can. Right. Right. And what were some of the observations that you had at Nortel that you think have best served you in your role now at Neptuno? Well, um, definitely um, what uh, what I was discussing from the bosses that knew how to lead it, you know, treat everybody like you're equal, like a person. They probably, if you have a concern, they probably have the same concern, you know, and the fact that you're the boss doesn't mean that, they, you know, that they're not thinking about this or they are not deserving of the same treatment. And, uh, and I had people, well, in my own case, I knew my whole team 
which was a great team, actually, all top talent, was going to be laid off. We were like 46 people. My boss had just moved from Washington six months earlier, and he also got laid off. And uh, so it was not a matter of performance. or It was just the, the situation the company was in. But, but because they were honest with me into what was going to happen, then I said, you know what? I want to leave anyway. See, if this is going to happen and I'm thinking already that I want to join the family business, you know, it's almost like, don't sweat it. Don't get me into three different lists because I would see lists of, of people going around, you know? And I said, just I volunteer and got my package and could plan it, you know? And so that gave me an insight into how different that experience was for me than from someone that was kept in the dark until the last minute. And then they came with security to pick him up and, and, and escort him out of the building. Brutal. Yeah. You know, it's brutal. Exactly. You don't recover from that. No, no. You know, so so that's kind of, uh, of the leadership I had. And I was very blessed that I had two great, you know, one direct, one dotted line bosses that stood with me throughout the process. And it, it was a good outcome, I think. It made me stronger in a good way rather than break me because I've seen some people that, as I say, they, they were almost traumatized by the experience. Mm, well, that's good to hear that uh, you were treated well. How would you say your leadership style has evolved over time? Well, I definitely have gotten more relaxed. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, good. Yes, I think that part of uh, what you were mentioning before, if it was uh, hard to prove to people, I think in family environments, yes, you, you are so focused on proving to people that you are deserving, that you have the, the experience, that you've paid your dues, so to speak, and, and have earned the, the position, then that also uh, inherently comes with some little anxiety and some... Uh, impatience, you know, you become a little impatient. And, and now I definitely am I'm more set in my, I'm more comfortable in my own skin. And uh, so I'm definitely more of a relaxed uh, leader, I'd like to think. And I, I listen more as, you know, I like to talk, as I say, the, the <laughs> my corridor experience. And, <laughs> and so I've learned to listen more, which is something that I definitely, um, you know, when you highlight what can I do better, uh, I think it's important to listen to your team and 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 then just um, try to to bake whatever they need into into your, the formula for where you want to go with them. Well, you're currently CEO of Netuno USA. You'd mentioned that uh, you started that operation here, correct? So, That's what year correct. was that? That's 2002. 2002, got it. And so you didn't uh, you weren't automatically or immediately CEO. So. Your father was overall uh, CEO during that period, or was there another CEO before you came into that role? No, he was a CEO. I I, I was a uh, executive vice president for like ten years. I was recently promoted, like two years ago. Right, <laughs> right. No, I noticed that in your bio. Right, so it's just been a couple of years there. So, how many people now are in the organization that you manage? Our organization is about uh, inter all international, two hundred and fifty people. We have a lot here in, you know, our office is not a big office. Uh, uh, we're about 10 people, uh, but uh, it's really, we are an international operation. So, so and we have a lot of, uh, you know, strategic partners such as Ericsson, um, you know, like big companies um, that we, we outsource resources from and to. So you're working with a lot of different partnerships as well in the uh, in the field, I would yes. imagine, right? Because you're still yes. in the tower business. How do you decide if it's time to micromanage, you know, or when to stay out of the sandbox with someone that reports directly to you? 
That's a great question <laughs> because, you know, I think some people would say I'm a little bit of a micromanager, but there's nothing I hate more than micromanage people. Like if I could have all everybody being a go-getter, really hands-on, proactive, uh, I would be so happy. But uh, the truth is um, that when I see that people are not being resourceful, you know, like when they're taking no, the first no they get, uh, then that's where I get. I start micromanaging a little bit because I know we're not getting the best result we can get. Uh, and, and, and so when I see that, that kind of behavior, when people are just not trying to influence, you know, this is, has become, everything is about influencing outcomes. And so when, when sometimes there are certain individuals, they, they just want the first excuse they get to like, Oh, no, this couldn't be done. <laughs> That's it. Uh, that's when I start micromanaging. Yeah, that's the time to zoom in. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on building a company culture. You know, you've been involved in the operation here in the U.S. for, gosh, almost 16 years and now lead it. Um, you know, do you proactively do so? And do you think about company culture as part of, uh, you know, kind of your legacy as CEO? Absolutely. You know, when you're almost kind of inheriting or, you know, when you're part of the family business, you, you do have a culture already defined in a way. But now we, you know, me and my siblings are more involved, although my dad is, is still involved in, the, in, the, in our headquarters. You know, he's still in Venezuela and, uh, and uh, my, he goes to the office. I mean, he went to Italy three days ago and I called my mom at 10 a.m. and I say, can I say bye to dad? And he said, oh, he's in the office. And I'm, <laughs> you know, and I say, I cannot believe a guy at 83 that is making, you know, a trip to Europe the same day. He still goes to the office right before going to the airport. I mean, I, uh, that's dedicated. dedicated and passionate. You know, I think definitely that's where the passion it's it's super important. So that I want to kind of keep in the company culture. But as the new generation leads on, I also we are in a transformational process also where I also want to make. People, uh, you know, like engage and, and understanding that we can grow this to the next level. Because when we formed Neptuno USA, it was never really targeting at the U.S., so to speak. Like it was more to serve our international customers, which a lot of them are in the Caribbean and uh, uh, Central America. And that's why, you know, we are uh, a lot of people outside the U.S., but in the U.S., we're still not super big. Um, and so now, uh, recently I actually made the company a women owned company. So, so yeah, so we got the WeBank certification. Yeah. La last year. And that's really our response into, we want to play in the Amer in the U S market. And that could be like a really, you know, interesting angle that we're going to try to, to attack, uh, as a, as a women owned uh, company in telecom, which there are not that many. No, no, that should help you a lot. Yeah. Correct. And, and so now I want to also create the culture for Neptuno USA, you know, with the basis of, of what my father's, uh, co culture or envision has been, but but it, it has to be some some sort of a new culture too. Yeah, makes good sense. Leticia, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? Well, definitely I look for people that are engaged, that are passionate. I have to feel the passion. Uh, when they speak, uh, they have to they have to get me excited. Like, okay, I want to work with this person. Uh, that's, I guess, the, the main treat I look for and the commitment, of course, 
you know, that passion is so common. Uh, I would say almost with every CEO, it's come up at somewhere in the interview, uh, how they were passionate about what they did. And as you've just said, how you look that, for that in others, it, it makes such a difference. So, so many times I say in my recruiting efforts, give me an ounce of passion for a pound of brains. You know, I need, I, I need <laughs> yeah, someone who's just really excited about coming into this opportunity. And, you know, it's okay if they make mistakes, right? But if they're excited and they're obviously, you know, committed to making that happen, you know, that's the kind of energy you want. Absolutely. And, and not only being the CEO, I think every CEO should have this, but also as an entrepreneur. And when it's your own business, you really cannot afford to lose the passion. It's something that's really non-negotiable. So you want your team to be on the same boat. Right. Are you doing a lot of hiring now as you expand your operations through the Caribbean, you know, Central America, and then the U.S.? Yeah, we're definitely going to do more hiring here in the U.S. Now that the, this new venture embarked, we have a few new exciting opportunities in the in the smart city um, play. We just recently announced we created Neptuno Smart Solutions. So that's a brand new company. And, uh, and so we've created two new companies in the, the past two weeks, uh, Smart Tech Port and Neptune. Thank you very much. And it's, it's just to address the, you know, what's going to happen in, in the smart city movement. It's going to be huge. So we definitely are looking into that. Do you get involved in some of the interviewing? And, and if so, you know, how do you interview and hire? Yes, I do get involved. Uh, we, I normally, um, you know, we start with, uh, you know, with the people that the person are going to be more involved with, like direct reports. Mm -hmm, uh, mm -hmm. But then ev eventually, yes, I, I want to have the one of the final says. Uh, and, you know, I, I take it very conversational, just like what we're doing. Uh, I try to, to get my own gut feeling about the candidate. And, uh, and see if it could be a good match for, for the kind of company we are. Also, because it's, you're, you're stuck in a, in a segment that I guess uh, uh, for, for ROI and for your own company, which is uh, like the middle market, you know, it's like you're not, you, you, you cater to companies that are not huge, but that are also really not small. So, and that requires a very specific kind of, of, of talent. Oh, very much so. Yeah. And culture yeah. plays a big part in it too, doesn't it, Leticia? Uh, you know, absolutely. You have to look for people that have that kind of background. So let's just take a hypothetical, um, you know, if you are hiring someone and let's say it's not a direct report, which is of course a much higher level of commitment to you, but maybe it's a, a direct report of one of your direct reports, let's say one level down, and you only had about five minutes to interview that person, what would you ask them? Definitely would ask, uh, one of the things I like to ask is, uh, what's the biggest career risk they have taken? Because it's important to me, um, as I mentioned before, when I, when I decided, you know, that, okay, Nortel is going through this thing, they, they offer me a job to stay, but I say there is no way. And uh, even now I take risks to, to stay with the, with the family company because, you know, not for nothing, you, you, you get job offers and you say, don't you get tired and you work for the business. And there's a risk to keep committing every day to, to the family business, especially in our situation where we have uh, the Venezuelan um, background that we're having. I mean, we had one of the worst years in terms of running any business that it's connected somehow to Venezuela. It has been extremely challenging. And that can take a toll, you know, and then you can say, oh, I can go somewhere else and it's just going to be so much e easier. Excuse me. So, but I, I like to learn about the person and what they consider uh, their biggest risk has been into their career and, and dig into that, that. 
Yeah, yeah, great. Well, Leticia Latino Van Splotron, this has been a very, very interesting conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your journey. We have one last question we ask all the CEOs. And, you know, that's got what kind of career and life advice would you give to someone who has their eyes on the corner office or perhaps wants to be an entrepreneur like yourself? Well, um, in terms of, I, the, the, you know, if you're not related to the company, I would definitely say don't I the, I the office, but just work like you would normally work. Because when, when you're too focused on the end goal, you forget the journey's happening. And then I think this happens all the time with people I see that, that they lose track of what they're trying to achieve. And, and I'm at the point in my career after 20 years that it's almost coming full circle of people I've met, meetings I've had, you know, and the consistency uh, that... I, I can say I've had, I think it's paying off now because people know what they're getting when they sit in a table with me and they know, they know we, we haven't been, you know, all over the place, uh, or, or trying to portray to be something we are not, you know? And, uh, if I can go back to one of the things that, uh, one of my bosses at Nortel did that, I say, okay, this is something that I don't want to do is to be selfish in your mm-hmm. job. You know, mm-hmm. when you're selfish mm-hmm. and you care only about what you want, eventually catches up with you and people know that. And so, and so for anyone wanting to, to have a corner office to become a CEO, you, you have to uh, be, you know, eager to, to be interested in the people that work for you. Right. Right. That's a good life lesson. Absolutely. And for an entrepreneur is don't surrender. You know, they say it over and over and over and it sounds like a joke, but they say, you know, the only way to get where you want to go is to, waking up every day even if you have <laughs> failure and and try a different angle that's right and and, the, and at some point that angle is one of, is going to be the one that brings you success Leticia, thank you once again for sharing your journey into the corner office thank you so much brent thank you for listening to into the corner office with brant hanley we hope you enjoyed hearing our guest ceo story as much as we did If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brandt, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.